Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello, you are listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast, as the introduction just explained. My name is Tom Butler. As always, I'm joined by Brendan Duffy. Hello. And Tom Wheatley. Hi, guys. <laughs> this <laughs> is a special episode diving into the making of Diamonds Are Forever, the 1971 Sean Connery James Bond film. His final outing as Bond, not quite, but his uh, final outing in the uh, Eon film series. So, yeah, this is um, Sean Connery's swan song as Bond, official swan song as Bond. And it's a really interesting story behind the making of this film. What do you think, guys think of the film in general? In general, I think it's poorly conceived and mm. I think Connery looks quite disinterested. Wheatley? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, uh, I won't go into depth because I've got a really good sort of quote that somebody said about it that I'll bring up later, but it's got all of the parts that you need for a Bond film. So technically mm-hmm. on paper, it looks amazing, but 
it isn't amazing. It doesn't quite use those parts to the full. But this posi- this this is going to be a positive podcast, right? We we're not here to give this film a kicking for for an hour and a half or whatever long it takes us to get through it. We're here to talk no. about the making of the film, all the people involved, uh, how it was conceived, how it was shot its release how it was received all that sort of stuff so we will um next week we'll probably speak to a guest who will talk about it a bit more in a critical way just to start things off on our twitter page i asked our followers to send over some three word reviews of diamonds are forever do you want to hear some I'd yeah. Love to. yeah definitely okay so first one that came in was from at casino royale 007 and he said campers christmas i'd probably agree with that <laughs> yeah patch uh said witty relaxed unique it's unique, mm-hmm. I would say that, and relaxed. Josh Cooper said, The Wrong Pussy, which is a quote from the film. Very good. <laughs> mm. Dominic J. Brown said, Saxby, Bert Saxby. That's in reference to a character from the film who I guess we'll talk about in a bit. Yep. Shayla called it a beautiful slick mess, which I think yep. uh, it chimes with what we just said. Harry said, Wint Heart Kid, which I appreciate the gesture. That's good. Yeah, more of that. I'm hoping that they've got a tattoo of that on them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> BB Doll, probably not the BB Doll, but they said a guilty pleasure. Uh, Haphazard mm-hmm. stuff just went with Blofeld in drag, question mark, which is a big question mark over this film for me. Yeah, huge. <laughs> and then Bart Zissi said, not worth it. Whoa, that's a brutal. <laughs> oh, dear. Brutal. So without further ado, let's start off by talking about the context that the film was made in in 1971. So 1971, uh, when Diamonds Are Forever was released, um, it was a really sort of premium time for US crime thrillers. French Connection, that won Best Picture at the Oscars. Other films that were released in 1971, which sort of give a a sense of the the sort of films that were being made. Dirty Harry, Clute, Clockwork Orange, Shaft, Get Carter, Vanishing Point. Sean Connery also starred in The Anderson Tapes. Um, and some other films from that era, which really talks about, you know, where cinema was at the time, which was, you know, being really freed up from its shackles and really hitting its 70s peak. You've got th- things like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Play Misty for Me, The Last Picture Show, uh, Harold and Maud, and a little film from a, a director who will go on to great things called Jewel. And interestingly, the film that won the best picture at the BAFTAs that year was Sunday Bloody Sunday, which was directed by John Schlesinger. Have, have either of you seen that? No. No. Nope. Uh, it was... Ri- it- Quite a groundbreaking film for its time, for its portrayal of, uh, of the, its lead character being a gay man, but it not being part of the plot. He was just like a happy gay man. So in talking about, you know, representation compared to Diamonds Are Forever, it's interesting where Diamonds Are Forever was when we talk about Winton Kidd later on. And the number one film at the box office that year, Fiddler on the Roof, starring mm. Topol, who we've talked mm. about before. So... Honor Majesty's Secret Service was the film that preceded it in 1969. It had been a hit, but there was a sense that it could have been bigger. United Artists, the studio behind Bond, um, began to exert more control over the films, uh, the James Bond films specifically, because the company that owned it, Transamerica Corporation, had been struggling a little bit. And UA had also sustained sort of significant losses in the previous year. So United Artists came in to Cubby and Harry and they laid down the law. There was going to be no more of their unlimited budgets for films. There was going to be no more unlimited schedules. And importantly, they felt that Honor Majesty's Secret Service had been too depressing. So they wanted something that was more fun and more like Goldfinger. And that was the one that they were really looking at. Hence why we got the director that we did on this one. But first things first... They had to find a James Bond. 
Yeah, bit of a headache because by November 1969, and this is actually prior to the release of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, George Lazenby quit the role and he was hoping to get other acting roles and he said that his his Bond contract was too demanding. He said, the producers made me feel like I was mindless. They disregarded everything I suggested simply because I hadn't been in the film business like them for about a thousand years. So he turned up to the premiere with long hair and a beard and and that, that didn't please Cubby either. This just totally seemed really unprofessional. And Lazenby had a seven-movie contract, but his agent, Ronan O'Rahilly, convinced him and told him that 007 would be archaic and 70s is all about, you know, liberation and, and freedom and love and peace. And so he stepped down. And more recently, he said, I had advice that James Bond was over anyway. It was Sean Connery's gig, and being in the 60s, it was love, not war. You know, hippie time, and I bought into that. So, he walks away, leaving them with a task on their hands. So, you've already talked about the fact that after Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the United Artists really wanted to kind of get a hold of this film and start laying down this law saying, look, you're not going to get unlimited budgets, you're not getting unlimited schedules, you're going to have to work by our rules on this. And the same thing applied to where it was being filmed. So what they wanted with this film, and they had a meeting with Cubby and Harry about it in New York, is that they wanted it to shoot largely in the US so that the studio could have a lot more voice and control over how they were going to pull this film together. So because of that, part of the production deal that came about saw them filming a lot of this at Universal Studio in Hollywood. And Broccoli spoke about this a few times, actually. He said it wasn't actually very keen on the idea. Um, He said, I'm feeling very gloomy about having to go. It makes me sick to see how bad things are in the business. I haven't made a film in America since 1950. I've explained to my friends in the rank organisation at Pinewood. It was a bit of a shock, but they understand. And then he talks about the geographical problem as well, because the, the other reason that they wanted to shoot in, were made to shoot in Universal Studios in Hollywood is that Obviously, Diamonds Are Forever, the book, is largely set in the US and around Vegas, um, although it is set in a few other places in the book. And he said, uh, we have a geographical problem with the latest Bond. It will be Diamonds Are Forever, which is one of the better of the Fleming stories still left to us. Most of it is set in Vegas, and there seems to be no way of making it in Britain. So this whole deal came about, and as we know from the film, it's massively set in in sort of US locations. There is it is shot some at some points in Pinewood and other places, but there's a lot more filming in the US than we've seen in any of the Bond films up until this point. But it wasn't all bad because Ken Adams talks about how who comes back as production designer talks about how Harry Saltzman actually had a really good relationship with with Universal anyway, so it probably wasn't a major issue for for Harry. And also for Guy Hamilton, who came in as director, he said it was a victory because he'd vowed never to make another picture in Britain, um, having experienced tough union problems during directing of Battle of Britain. So yeah, uh, a lot of the film was filmed around Universal Studios in the North Hollywood backlot. Specifically, the main scene that uh, took place there was the the big car chase scene, which we'll talk through in a bit. So before they um, headed to America, they had to find a James Bond because yeah, George Lazenby had decided not to do it. So in November uh, 1970, 
10 British actors were screen tested at Pinewood. Guy Hamilton says that that he tested all the junior actors of the period, plus a couple of oddities. And one of those oddities was the explorer, Ranulph Fiennes, who is the uncle of Ray Fiennes, uh, who's our current M. Ranulph says that he spoke to Cubby for 10 minutes, who then decided he was just too young, too unbond-like and facially more like a farmhand than an English gentleman. The associate producer on the film, uh, a guy called Stanley Sopal, says that they also tested four American actors for the film as well. One of those reportedly to be Burt Reynolds. Cubby also spoke to his friend Robert Wagner about it. Robert Wagner would later go on to marry Jill St. John, and we've discussed her previously. But again, Robert Wagner felt he was too American to do it. But Reynolds also declined because of that very same reason. The The issue was, was that Harry, Cubby and UA all had to agree and they just couldn't find someone that they all agreed on. One actor that they looked at and liked was Roger Moore. He was unfortunately committed to making the TV series The Persuaders. Other people included uh, a singer called Malcolm Roberts an American actor called Brett Halsey, and then an actor called John Gavin, who you may have heard of before. He's in Psycho, Spartacus, and OSS 117 Double Agent. That's a James Bond spoof. And John Gavin was the one that they landed on. Um, he really looks the part, if you ever see pictures of John Gavin. He was American. And John Gavin um, was announced via an interview with LA Times in January of 1971. Cubby said that he was their man. So... Obviously, that wasn't to be, which we'll move on to. But ultimately, although John Gavin didn't appear in Diamonds Are Forever or play James Bond, uh, Eon honoured his contract in full and the relationship ended amicably. And John Gavin walked away with $50,000. And and I think, according to some reports, some residual checks from the film as well, which obviously would have been very good for him. John Gavin was expected to take over from Sean Connery after Diamonds Are Forever, but obviously that didn't happen. But let's move on to Connery. Yeah, so there was a big meeting at Cubby's house in Beverly Hills and David Picker, who was the president of United Artists at the time, he'd flown in for a big discussion and he wanted he wanted the clout of Connery, basically. And so they had the big discussion and he said, let's see if we can make a deal with Sean. And they all agreed that they would you know, try and, and see what they can do. And obviously you've mentioned that they were saying they wanted to make cutbacks and not just throw money around like they had in the past. Obviously, approaching Connery meant it was going to cost more money than getting somebody like John Gavin in. And so they worked it out. If they had a British crew, it could qualify for something called the ED Levy, which is uh, a studio refund thing that uh, if if you make and distribute films in England then you can qualify for this this money. And then once they'd generated that, they felt that they could get a deal with Connery and it would make it worthwhile. So that opened the door for that for the possibility of that financially. Associate producer Stanley Sopal was friends with Sean Connery. So the producers then sent him off to London to go and meet with Connery and his agent. And they shared a bottle of whiskey. After a meeting, thrashing it out, Connery wasn't wasn't budging wasn't interested so back to the drawing board they try another route they send ursula andress did you know this <laughs> they sent ursula andress to go and try and convince him and she says that's when i had to talk to sean broccoli and saltzman asked me to come from paris to london and talk to sean to give him the offer and convince him to do the film remarkable they're throwing everything and it's it's not working 
He stands his ground. He's not budging. So David Picker, the president of UA, decides that he's just going to go and sort it out himself. So he, he schedules a meeting. They meet up. And this is where he makes him a huge offer. So he put on the table $1.25 million, 10% of the gross, and $145,000 per week if the film ran over uh, 10%? Yeah. Amazing. And then Connery was also promised financial backing for two films of his choice, one of which that he was would be allowed to direct. So... It's it's monumental and actually went into the Guinness Book of Records being the highest paid actor ever and it sort of paved the way for the sort of thing we see now with huge m- money being spent on stars. How much is that nowadays, um, Brendan? Did you look? I didn't, no. I, I'd read somewhere that it's worth, that 1.25 was worth about £20 million, but um, I could be wrong. But that's like what Scarlett Johansson just got for Black Widow, so... Um, yeah, it's like top dollar for for a leading star, right? Yeah, and ten percent of the gross. Well, yeah, and and two films of his choice. Yeah, it's, it's huge. not bad, is it? It's great. So this is where he Connery thought about it, and he, the films he'd recently made, they, they weren't they hadn't been huge, and so he agreed to do it. And he said, "I have no real dissatisfaction with the character as such. That would really be stupid." Although I had to take a week to make the decision myself whether I would do it again. So he's gone away for a week and decided that he is going to do it. I mean, he'd be mad not to, right? Hmm. And so all of that $1.25 million he gave to the Scottish International Education Trust that he'd set up. And Stanley Sopel said, Sean got no money for the picture at all. He donated the whole thing. That is an absolute fact. Some people don't believe that's true, but I'm here to tell you it's true. Sean gave all that money away. Well, apart um, from so, the residual checks that he got from the 10%. Yes. Yeah, but yeah. that 1.25 million. Yeah, he, he, which wasn't, is, he wasn't struggling for cash afterwards, was he? <laughs> cash in mind back to the Connery episode, this is when he's going through his divorce as well. So he's done a canny deal here. Yeah. He's raised all this money for his charity and he's secured some money to pay off his divorce as well and mm. secured two more films to be made as well. It's an yeah. amazing deal. It's mm. fantastic. And that, that initial resistance is really... Um, paid off hasn't it um so the in terms of the films we did cover this in his episode but i just thought i'd remind you that under that deal he made the offense with sydney lumet and the second one was meant to be an adaptation of macbeth with connery playing the title role but it was abandoned because roman polanski was already producing a, a version of macbeth so yeah with bond in place now it's time to piece together the cast and crew well, the director wasn't a, a, a tough part of the film selection because, as we know about this film, they basically, after on a Magic Secret Service, through various reasons, whether that was the style of the film, the way that it was, the story was written, or the way it was directed, they knew they wanted to go back to Goldfinger. Goldfinger was like the gold standard of the, the, the whole thing they wanted to get back to. They wanted Connery back. They wanted the film to, to hit the heights of Goldfinger. And to do that, they got back the director from Goldfinger, which is Guy Hamilton. Sounds seems like a no-brainer, really, if you're trying to make a, you know, a replica of Goldfinger for the for the audience. But what I did read is that Peter Hunt, who directed on a Magic Secret Service, 
was actually invited to be the director before Guy Hamilton was. And I don't know how true that is because it seems to conflict a bit in the stuff that I've read, but apparently that was the case and he did get that offer. But he was involved with another project at the time. So um, he said to them he could only work on the film if the production date was postponed. And they said, no, you're not doing that. So so they went to, to Guy Hamilton and he, Guy Hamilton picked it up pretty happily. It didn't seem to be any sort of discussion that went on. They just said, yep. Perfect. I'll, I'm happy to do that. Obviously, by that point, they knew Sean was coming back as well. So, bit of a no-brainer. So yeah, Guy Hamilton comes back to make a Goldfinger-alike movie. If only. If only. If only. <laughs> <laughs> so for the script, they brought in Richard Maybaum as usual. He wrote the first draft of the script based off the Fleming novel. The novel itself was released in 1956. It's the fourth James Bond book. It's very good. Um, recommend it it's very gangster heavy but maybaum wrote the script as bond avenging tracy's death and it had goldfinger's twin brother as the villain uh, he was going to be a mad swedish shipping magnet um, armed with a laser cannon housed in one of his fleet of boats super tankers and gert frobe was going to return this is quite common knowledge but one of the lines of dialogue that was going to be spoken was i think you knew my brother auric mother always said he was a bit retarded so it was a, a quite an interesting take the richard maybound script had a, a climax at the end with motorboats on lake mead and uh, lake mead i don't know if you know but this is a this is the reservoir formed by the hoover dam in, on the colorado river it's um, near 24 miles east from las vegas so the film would have climaxed on lake mead and it would have had gambling tycoons from vegas teaming up with bond and he was going to lead all their yachts in like an armada to chase blofeld who was trying to escape across lake mead Sounds good. It sounds kind of crazy. But David Picker wasn't pleased with the script, so he brought in uh, a screenwriter called Tom Mankiewicz, and he will feature heavily in the James Bond story from here on in, really. He was only 26 at the time, but the son of Joseph Mankiewicz, uh, the screenwriter, and also nephew of Herman Mankiewicz. And if you've seen the film Mank, that's who it's about. So it's the uncle of Tom Mankiewicz. And Tom Mankiewicz went, went on to do Superman and a bunch of other things as well, so... He's considered to be a genius for dialogue, really able to bring character to, to characters through their voice. But uh, the flip side of that is, I think it's fair to say, he made Diamonds Are Forever and the films going on from this point in the James Bond series almost irreversibly goofier. Um, he injected an element of silliness to the films that, you know, for better or worse, will linger on throughout the 70s. So Picker brought him in because he'd seen his Broadway musical Georgie and Cubby told um, Mankiewicz, we need a writer who's American because a, a lot of it takes place in Vegas, but we also need one who can write in a British idiom. So Mankiewicz was hired on a two-week guarantee for $1,250 a week, turning the first 30 pages within the first two weeks. And he worked very closely with Guy Hamilton and Cubby on the script. One of his ideas was the idea of bringing in the multiple Blofelds. And at this point also, they got rid of the idea of Goldfinger's brother. One person who loved Mankiewicz's script was Sean Connery. And when he found out that the uh, Mankiewicz was 26, he would call him Boyo from, from then on. And when he got the feedback that Connery liked his draft of the script, Mankiewicz said, I felt like Olivia had just played Hamlet for me. For five minutes, I felt like the most important writer who had ever lived. And then when he met Connery on set, he was really surprised about how much work he'd, Connery had put into the script himself. He, he, apparently he gave him notes on every single line of the script and they went through it from start to finish working on it. Cubby wasn't so taken with some of Manx's jokes that were in the script. One particularly, the ele elementary my dear lighter line which is the 
bit where Felix is asking where the diamonds are and they're basically up the guy's arse. He said, <laughs> Cubby said, take it out, take it out. But it ended up staying in the film. And when it played at Man's Chinese Theatre at the US premiere, two out of the two people in the audience out of 1500 people laughed. And Cubby turned to Mank and said, two doctors, big deal. <laughs> so uh, it's quite a funny um, anecdote. Obviously, it's very comedic. The script for Diamonds Are Forever is quite arch. And it feels a lot more like a Roger Moore film than a Sean Connery film. It basically mm. starts the Roger Moore era before Roger Moore joins. And Mankovich would actually then go on to receive sole writing credit on the next one, Live and Let Die, shared credit on The Man with the Golden Gun. And then he later came back and did a rewrite on Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, and then he also helped on Moonraker as well. Richard Maybaum later contested Mankovich's screenplay credit, saying that he'd basically done all the hard work and Mankovich had come in and basically just added bits and bobs of dialogue but um they both got co- co-writing um credits in the end but richard maybam you know he wasn't bitter about the experience but he did write a letter to cubby saying that they would really need a really good editor on the film because peter hunt had, had done wonders for all the previous films obviously peter hunt was no longer working on it as he felt that guy hamilton had a had a, had a tendency to make things drag on a little bit um and that peter hunt had basically rescued most of the previous films and really did everything he could to make them exciting films. It's funny that with 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 the um talking about Mankiewicz, I've I've read it a few times that he was brought in to sort of like bridge the American English sort of British dialogue. But we when we watched this the other night, that was a bit that I felt thought was the most jarring. It doesn't doesn't seem to quite get it right. It's neither the British style or the American style. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I personally don't find the the dialogue too bad. I think I think it is it is witty in places, but it's I just don't think it's dated very well, has it? No. So there was an alternative ending to the script um, that Mankiewicz had had written. Obviously, the film climaxes on the oil rig, but in the original script, Blofeld actually escaped from the rig in his bathos sub, and Bond tied a weather balloon to the sub and floated along behind it as Blofeld made his escape. And the boat was meant to, the submarine was meant to come up onto the beach in Mexico. And Blofeld was, Blofeld was going to turn around and quip, Mary Poppins, I presume, and shoot down the balloon. And then Bond. <laughs> Bond, thank, Bond. Thank goodness that did. I say thank goodness that didn't happen, but Bond, I wouldn't have minded. At the end of the film, I think that would have been fine. Uh, Bond then falls into the sea and then they make a chase along the shoreline. And, it, and the film was then going to end in a big salt mine scene. And Blofeld would eventually be killed, falling to his death in a salt granulator. But that was eventually cut due to budget and time constraints. Sean Connery in Diamonds Are Forever chasing Charles Grey down a beach. I'd love to see that. (laughs) That's not going to be a high octane chase, is it? (laughs) But yeah, I guess there was another big influence on the script for Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah, huge. So I'm going to dial it back a little bit. Um, back to 1934, where Cubby, if you remember from the Cubby episode, he went to Hollywood to visit his cousin. And obviously he he had friends in high places, Cary Grant, um, and also uh, a tall, lanky Texan who Cubby met and they started to become friends. And he was known to his friends as Sam, but it was Howard Hughes. Now, they became friends. So Howard Hughes, now I didn't know much about him until I went down an absolute rabbit hole. So I'm going to skim over it, but I, 
it's an interesting story if you want to check out Howard Hughes and everything about him. You know, he was one of the world's richest men at the time, a pioneer of aviation. But anyway, in terms of our story, years later, Cubby Broccoli starts producing his first film, The Red Beret. I think we mentioned that in the episode. And Howard Hughes at this point is the owner of RKO Film Studio. And so he agrees to put up the financing of the of the film. Moving forward, after a near fatal plane crash in 1946, Hughes's health begins to deteriorate. He becomes paranoid and is a germaphobic. And then throughout the years, becomes more and more isolated and to the point where people don't see him anymore. And he's looked after by um, Mormon caretakers. Did you know this? No. Yeah. Um, so they were the only people that were allowed to sort of look after him. And so the last time Cubby Broccoli had spoken to Hughes was during the film of Thunderball, where Held Hughes had contacted him on set at Pinewood and he'd apologised for not keeping in touch. And this, Dana says, Howard Hughes asked for every Bond film. He ran every single film. And in the end, when we asked for the films back, they all just run over and over and over. They're almost worn out. So he really loved seeing those films. So Harold Hughes is a, clearly a Bond fan and he's a, also a fan of esp- espionage and he was a major supplier of technology to the CIA. He had big, big contracts with them. It was worth $7 billion, which is just incredible if you think at that time as well. Yeah. Um, the invention, Hughes Aircraft invented things like air-to-air missile um, and technology for the space program as well um, and surveillance satellites. So this is huge technological advancements going on there um in 1966 howard hughes moves into desert in casino in las vegas and he takes over a penthouse and he has all the windows sealed and uh, and then fitted with drapes blackout ones and then so he buys more suites in the same building and that is where he creates his whole empire from and his intention was to transform las vegas from a at the time, it was quite rough and ready place. A lot of mob, a lot of gangster stuff happening. But he wanted to change it into an adult Disneyland type event. In a, in a memo he wrote to one of his aides, he, he's put, I'd like to think of Las Vegas in terms of a well-dressed man in a dinner jacket and a beautifully jeweled and furred female getting out of an expensive car. And so he started buying up hotels, casinos um, all over Las Vegas and, and made that that ambition come true and... I think it's hard for people at us th- at our age to imagine that because Las Vegas is just, well, I think we just accept it for what it is right now. But even if you look back at Diamonds Are Forever, it, it's not the Las Vegas we know now. No, not at all. No. So it's, it is incredible that the amount of money that was pumped into that to, to get this this dream, make it a reality. So then in on the 25th of November 1970, Howard Hughes... And his Mormon carers, they vanish from from the Desert Inn. And then this is reported to the FBI. And then this is on the, the, the front of a newspaper with Howard Hughes vanishes. And there were speculations that he'd been drugged and kidnapped and was probably dead. Until finally they tracked him down to a luxury hotel in the Bahamas. He'd basically run away. He'd got paranoid and he just ran off and wanted to get away from it all yeah and there's a big conspiracy theory whether he, he did die because he, he did use lookalikes he was known to use lookalikes because he was afraid of going out later on in his life 
so there is conspiracy theories that say that he he died anyway and they used lookalikes for most of it but that's not that's by the by but by all means go and check out the story it's crazy <laughs> now back to bond <laughs> so that thought and that news article and what all the ongoings were in the subconscious of cubby and this was early on the planning of diamonds are forever cubby had a dream and this is what changed the direction of of the of the script and dana remembers she says cubby was always looking for that hook for the story to take off from and one morning he woke and said i've had the most fabulous dream and i said what what was it cubby said it was about howard hughes he said i thought i was outside the penthouse window and he had his back to me and i was knocking on the window and was saying sam and when he turned round it wasn't howard hughes at all it was a total stranger he said that's what i've been looking for this fellow who's kept captive in this penthouse and everything below is still going on as though he exists. And that was the way the story started. So, incredible. That dream was the, was the catalyst for the, the spine of a lot of what goes on in Diamonds Are Forever. So he's the inspiration for Willard White then? Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's where that comes from. Willard White and then obviously... Blofeld changing his voice and and just staying in that penthouse and portraying himself as Willard White because no one's seen him for years. It's it's fas- fascinating. Well, it's a lot more fascinating than the actual story. <laughs> so, <laughs> lis- listening to your overview of Howard Hughes and how it influenced Diamonds Are Forever, it's a bit of an anticlimax when you actually come to to the film and you see like how they've used that mm. with Blofeld. I think. It it does sound quite exciting until until you actually see how they've they've, they've created it. The story of Diamonds Forever. I'll, I'll I'll do a bit of a, an overview of it just so we're clear on and how it all works. Now it plays in with sort of the books and everything like that. But I I've seen Diamonds Forever quite a few times now, and we rewatched it a few days ago. And I think Diamonds Forever is one of the most I forget the the plot probably more than any Bond film. I think every time I watch it, I I I, I real I I'm thinking. I don't actually know what's happening here. It takes me quite a while to get my head around the actual plot because it is quite convoluted and it does take a while to kind of wind its way up to the actual point of of the story. But this, this, the, the film starts with Connery is, he's back and uh, I'll talk a bit about the title sequence in a bit, but basically he's going back after Blofeld, which is probably hearkening back to, to Unimagined Secret Service, but very, very loosely. It's not really a revenge thing. It's more like he's just got to get Blofeld. It doesn't seem like a big revenge story. And he kills him. And then what starts is a completely new case. So it's got he's killed Blofeld. That's gone. All done. And then Connery gets put on this case to kind of uncover this diamond smuggling ring. And so in order to, to find and, and uncover this ring, he, he goes under a undercover as this um, assassin Peter Franks who's um, a professional smuggler they go to Amsterdam and he's meets Tiffany Case who's a, a diamond smuggler as well and he ends up fighting Franks who actually comes to the house that Tiffany Case is at and then the plot on on wines and you find out that Tiffany Case is involved in this diamond smuggling ring Bond's played as playing the role of Peter Franks so they find out that uh, they need to go to Los Angeles, where the um, diamond smuggling ring is kind of located, and it's all it's all happening around there. And he sends these diamonds over in Frank's corpse. So what happens here? They're in America. So that's the only bit of the film 
that isn't in America. The bit, a little bit in at the start of the film, and then they go to Amsterdam, which is quite a nice scene. Actually, I think the Amsterdam is quite a nice set. So they they go to America. They go to a funeral home to get these diamonds back from Frank's body. Bond's nearly killed by Winton Kidd, and then the whole plot with the White House opens up, which is linked in with all of this diamond smuggling uh, with a chap called Shady Tree, who's a stand-up comedian there. I'm not going to go into too much depth about all that happens after this, but basically it all becomes... There's a, there's a scene where they go to... a Tiffany Case goes to a circus to pick up the, the real diamonds that they're trying to get hold of. There's a, Then he ends up in a lab where he's going to find... He's been... He's finding out about this satellite that's being built. So this is the first time we find out about the new part of the plot it's no longer diamonds there's a satellite involved in here somewhere there's a moon buggy scene which i still don't quite understand have you have you either of you worked out why there's why this lab is reenacting the moon landing i think it's a suggestion that they fake in the moon landings for some reason but yeah i don't know it seems like probably something that harry dreamt up <laughs> So it's almost like a pop culture reference, isn't it? Oh, there's a moon landing. Let's stick that in at a lab. Two, yeah, two, two years after the moon landing, wasn't it? The first yeah. one. Let's make reference mm. to that for no reason and drive a moon buggy across the sand with some questionable chase sequence where they use cars to chase a moon buggy across sand and and also actually have sand-based motorbikes, which could be used, but they send out the cars anyway. So there's a, there's a pointless chase sequence. Eventually, he goes back to the penthouse and he goes up this elevator and he goes into the penthouse and finds Blofeld's there. But there's two Blofeld's. And that's when he realises that he didn't kill Blofeld, but he has multiple copies of himself that he's used to sort of cover up his real existence as Willard White in the White House. And we also find he's got this device that means he can mirror his voice, the voice of Willard White which I have numerous issues with as well. But <laughs> uh, then he goes to rescue Willard White and he goes to his house, finds has a fight with Bambi and Thumper, goes back to the lab and finds that this is all, the whole of this diamond thing, the whole of this plot up until now is actually a massive extortion plan by Blofeld to create a laser that can destroy nuclear weapons, which Blofeld can then use to extort various world governments or anything like that so, to make them world powers. So destroy all, everyone else's nuclear weapons. And then eventually they go to Baja, California on an oil rig where Willard White's or Blofeld's whole operation takes place. And then the final scene is with Winton Kidd, which is interesting because it's, I think that was the start of the henchman being the last baddie to fight Bond because in the previous films, it tends to be the, the main baddie isn't dead and they come back but in this this film Winton Kidd come back as the sort of post-death Blofeld yeah. baddies which I think work quite well it does, they, they use it quite a lot in the later films like yeah, Nick um, Knack Nick Knack uh, Teehee in uh, Live and Let Die it becomes quite a common theme that once the main baddie's dead that the henchmen come back to sort of avenge uh, the, the, the main baddie so yeah so that's the main film bit, bit convoluted a little bit well very much Austin Powers I think <laughs> this is probably one of those ones that's Austin Powers probably co- co- takes a lot from You Only Live Twice, but I think also a lot from Diamonds Are Forever, right from the start when you see the um, him like killing Blofeld in the mud tank. All very Austin Powers. You've read the book, haven't you, Butler? Yeah. Which is a lot... I actually think this, the plot to the book is just... It just sounds a lot more interesting. It's much um, more streamlined, going, yeah. A lot more streamlined. And it sounds like... Normally we talk about Bond books not having enough for a movie... 
But Diamonds of Dark Forever does seem to have a lot going on it. It's got a lot of locations. It's got a lot of characters. It just sounds really good. So I don't know why they didn't use more of it. It's It does have some of the elements. So it's got Shady Tree in it. Um, but the main baddie in it is this sort of duo, Jack and Serafimo Spang. Yeah, they're US um, gangsters and mobsters, aren't they? Yeah, and they, they're kind of, they're not all based in the US. Um, I think uh, Serafimo Spang, he is at the start of the film and that's um, in, set in Hatton Garden. Yeah, he's the London-based one. Yes, yeah, yeah. And then um, Felix Light is in it, but he's got a hook and a false leg because of the events of the, the previous book. Let me let die, yeah. Um, there's lots, so many good elements in it. Uh, there's a, a horse racing scene where um, Serafimo Spang is, well, uh, he goes there to find Serafimo Spang and um, Winton Kidd put hot sulfur mud on a jockey. Then they go to Las Vegas, so they do end up in Las Vegas, and they go to this place called Specterville, which is a, a sort of ghost town with a steam train in it, where Bond's tortured by Winton Kidd. All of this sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's good. I don't know why they didn't uh, I think more of these elements. I wonder if Diamonds Are Forever, the film, would be better if they had, hadn't had had Blofeld in it, because I think that's the element that really throws yeah. a spanner into the whole works, and because they were trying to do this revenge thing, I think if they'd taken yeah. him out and had a different villain, it might have been might have been a bit more interesting but yeah i mean there's there's i mean even in some of the later scenes like uh then they go to sierra leone and uh bond kills jack sprang in a helicopter using an anti-aircraft gun yeah but yeah it's it's just that the book sounds absolutely fantastic I and mean, you talked a bit about the other this kind of sort of script ideas with um goldfinger's brother but there i read something that uh when richard maybaum started work on on the original script for um the for the film it was an avenge. It was a revenge story. It was that was the main focus because it yeah. was obviously following on a Majesty's Secret Service, and it, they didn't have Connery in it. And but Saltzman at the time, because of on a Majesty's Secret Service and the, and this whole thing with United Artists, where they didn't have as much money, Saltzman was suggesting places like Thailand and India as locations f- for the film because that there was not a lot of money there. And one of the earlier scripts, apparently according to Broccoli, um, had Bond like trekking through the jungle and doing tiger hunts type stuff. And it felt more like a, a Tarzan film. So it just sounds like there's so many elements to this, this storyline to get to the point that it got to. And they're so diverse. Like, well, it just talks, it sounds like they're sort of scrambling, isn't it? For the yeah. film. And they obviously had a very short period to get it out in. And um, that's often the case when their backs against the wall, that the films could become a bit wonky. Like, you know, look at quantum of solace. Yes, Spectre, yes, exactly, like, yeah. They just they just become rushed and a bit uh, a bit all over the place. But but there you go. That's the story of Diamonds Are Forever. Quite convoluted, but basically he wants to create a laser as usual. Let's have a look then at the the, the crew that were involved. Obviously, we know Guy Hamilton is back for his second James Bond film after Goldfinger. Cubby and Harry producing. Stanley Sopel, associate producer. You also had John Barry coming back to do the music composition, and he wrote the theme song as well, which we'll touch upon later. Cinematography was done by Ted Moore. He was the longtime Bond cinematographer, but he had left the series for the last two and now came back. I think that was part of United's Artists trying to recapture the magic of the earlier films. Ken Adam was there as well. Um, one thing that he said about the film was that he really didn't like designing the, the kitschy Vegas interiors. I think he felt it was a bit below him, but he does, a, he does a decent enough job, I think. The film editing, obviously Peter Hunt no longer with the series, but uh, that was handled by Burt Bates and John W. Holmes. Stunts, as always, by Bob Simmons and titles, as we'll discuss later, Morris Binder. So, yeah, that's that's the, the, the sort of the crew behind the scenes. Who did we have in front of the camera? So we've got a few people returning 
Uh, obviously, Connery, Bernard Lee is back as M. Desmond Llewellyn is back as Q. Lois Maxwell returns as Moneypenny. I think we'll talk about her her part in this later on. And Charles Gray, who's previously been in You Only Live Twice as is it Dicko Henderson. Yeah. The guy gets stabbed in the back. And now he's back, but as a different character. And Tom Mankiewicz said, Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever is very different from the way he was put portrayed by Donald Pleasance in You Only Live Twice. Guy Hamilton selected Charles Gray, who had played a small part in You Only Live Twice as a totally different character who ends up with a knife in his back. I said to Charles Gray, Blofeld is like Hedda Hopper, the notorious gossip columnist. At one point, we even had him dressed in drag. We had him say outrageous lines. He was sophisticated and fussy. There you go. Charles Gray gets to gets to play another character in the Bond franchise. And then we've got some new new cast members, some freshies. Hmm. A lot of Americans. Obviously, the main one we've got is Jill St. John, who we will talk about many, many times over the course of this podcast series. Um, and I think that episode where we actually talk about her... Have we not done her yet, have we? We did Tiffany no, Case. Yes. Yeah. We yeah. have done a Tiffany Case, yeah. But we, I, to be honest, when we, did, when, when we talked about Tiffany Case, I didn't know anywhere near about the, the, uh, the stuff that we know now about Jill St. John. It just seems to creep into so many bits of Bond. But I'm sure she'll crop up in, in, in future episodes when we talk about various cast members. So she, obviously, uh, she, Jill St. John plays Tiffany Case, who's the, the, the sort of main diamond smuggler. Probably, I think she's really good, actually. She she's was originally fantastic. meant to to play the role of Plenty O'Toole, but she she's obviously you know picked for the picked for the main role as Tiffany Case because they were impressed with her. But as always, and probably more so than most Bond girls, um, massively dips halfway into the film she goes from being like a main character with a lot of depth and a lot of good lines to standing on an oil rig in a bikini shooting a machine gun that's so hard she falls off the back yeah (laughs) yeah which is just nonsense i even read something that suggested that the reason they set the last scene on an oil rig is just so they could put her in a bikini with a machine gun wow yeah but yeah she just I think you can when we watched it the other day, you can almost see the point where they they just just she just turns. She just suddenly becomes like useless, like instantly. Mm. But at the start she's meant to be this like super powerful diamond smuggler. So anyway, that's Jilson John. But she is brilliant. She's very good in it for the majority of the film and she's got a she's it's a really good character. I, I'm assuming a better character in the in the book, so I've not read Diamonds Are Forever, but um Yeah, I mean so listen back like to she's... our Tiffany Case episode where I think we did a bit more detail on her there, but um yeah, I mean yeah. all these characters will get their own episode, own sections in, in in other episodes, so always worth cross referencing. Okay, so then we've got Lana Wood, who played Plenty O'Toole. Um not really in it a great deal, but even though she wasn't in it a lot, she's a very, very famous Bond girl. One of one of the one of the big names really is in in the Bond echelon Bond girl echelons, but she apparently had a lot more scenes originally in the film, but a lot of them just weren't put in the film. So she's actually got a smaller part. Um, Jimmy Dean as Willard White, yeah, he's like a caricature, isn't he? Basically, he's the one who's kind of based on um, Howard Hughes. Jimmy Dean um, was a um, like a variety artist, wasn't he at the time? Quite a famous yeah, singer yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, act. Yeah, imagine he was part of the relationship with vegas that got him the part yes well, he, he actually worked for howard hughes oh and he was really a bit, um, oh really he's yeah he was worried about taking the role because uh obviously it was a slight and it was homage but also a bit of a dig at him so he was worried yeah i don't think his character ages very well 
I think he's funny. I like him in the. I like him in the film. Oh, he's he's funny. I mean, if he was in a Roger Moore film, he'd be brilliant. Yeah, he'd be up there with <laughs> J.W. Pepper. <laughs> Imagine if he was in Goldfinger. Yeah, Th- there's some lesser ones as well. You got Bruce Bruce Cabot as Albert R. Burt Saxby, who's inexplicably goes up to find Bond and the CIA on his own on a hilltop and gets killed. Yeah. Then you've also got a few other people like uh, Bruce Glover, of course, and uh, who plays Mr. Wint. And then Putter Smith, who was uh, actually not an actor at the time. They spotted him uh, playing a gig, the the production team. And they said, he, he looks like Mr. Kid. And they approached him. And um, I, I think um, Bruce Glover helped him with the sort of acting side of things as the, he was in the role. But they are a fantastic pair, I think, in that film. They're really... Um, yeah, Putter's like a really famous musician, isn't he? Well, Th- Thelonious Monk, he's yeah. like the bass player or something. But um, I think they were both yeah. going to be played by musicians first, but um, the other guy pulled out and Bruce Glover stepped mm-hmm. in. So it kind of become a bit of a mismatch pair, didn't it? And, and Bruce Glover, of course, the uh, father of Crispin Glover. <laughs> Back to the future, yeah. Back to the future. I'll, I'll, I'll mention that now because every time I mention that to these two, they go, not again. Don't stop mentioning that. But a lot of people don't know that. And if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know that, you're going to be you're going to be telling people that for the next few weeks. Uh, Norm, Norman Burton is Felix Leiter, who's um, I can't remember which version of Felix Leiter it is. I think it's probably about four by four, this point. Fourth, I think. Yeah. Yeah, fourth. So he's um, yeah, he's Felix Leiter. Doesn't he's he's all right. A couple of others. Uh, Leonard Barr as Shady Tree, who's not in a great deal, but he, he's got quite a good role in that. I think he's an actual stand-up comedian. And then the other one, which I, is an honourable mention, just because he's got a great name, Ed Bishop, playing Klaus Hergesheimer. <laughs> Klaus Hergesheimer. <laughs> he's a, I think he's a fan. I always remember Klaus Hergesheimer. He's one of the smallest parts in the Bond films, but I'll never forget that man. He's got a fantastic role in that film. <laughs> Klaus Hergesheimer. So we've got all the key ingredients now. We just need to move into production. And we discussed before that they had done a deal to film the film uh, or do the bulk of production at Universal Studios in Florida. But as also discussed, due to Connery's fee and the E.D. Levy tax break, it was decided that the studio shooting would move back to Pinewood. So they returned to Pinewood to shoot interiors. Unfortunately, Ken Adam <laughs> had begun work at Universal Studios. Obviously, pre-production takes a lot longer than the actual production. So pre-production starts a lot sooner. So Ken Adam had been beavering away over in Universal Studios, done all this work, and he actually wasn't able to come back to the UK to work at Pinewood for the film. <laughs> uh, so Because it was just a logistical nightmare. He'd done all his work there. I imagine he had all the models, all the like um, designs, all the blueprints for everything but um interestingly peter lamont who would later become the bond production designer um he acted as a liaison between ken adam and pinewood to help coordinate production so he was sort of a go-between between the production and then obviously when shooting they moved out to america ken adam was able to join the the bulk of the crew but uh yeah i just thought it was quite an interesting um sort of wrinkle in the story and so it's off to vegas to start filming uh, 5th of April 1971 where the the scenes in the early uh, stages of the film set in South Africa also shot desert in Vegas so yeah it, they finished shooting on the 13th of August 1971 so during that time the locations they used were the, the International Airport the City Studios Universal and eight hotels were used uh, of uh, Las Vegas 
And so, yeah, it took most, mostly in place in hotels owned by Howard Hughes. And that's down to that friendship with Cubby Broccoli. And also the collaboration with Hughes, the police and all the retail and commercial outlets in Hollywood meant that they could get the streets. I say empty. If you watch, <laughs> if you watch the, uh, the, the, the chase, they didn't do a good job of getting them empty, but they were allowed to clear the roads at least. But it didn't stretch to the actual sidewalk because, uh, yeah, if you watch that car chase, they're just lining the streets watching it. But yeah, the uh, owner of a number of the hotels uh, themselves were Bond fans. So that led to them being able to being given permission. And the cinematographers actually said that filming in Las Vegas at night um, had an advantage that they didn't need extra uh, lighting. Uh, because of all the neon lights that were in place. Sean Connery, I think it's well uh, well known that he enjoyed his time whilst shooting in Vegas. He played golf all day. He's, he actually said, I didn't get any sleep at all. We shot every night. I caught all the shows and I played golf all day. On the weekend, I collapsed. Boy, did I collapse like a skull with legs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he played all the slot machines. And he actually delayed the shooting of one of the scenes because he was collecting his winnings. So, you know, his priorities are slightly skewed at this point. During the Vegas shoot, he also dated Lana Wood. Uh, I think we mentioned that in the Connery episode. But Ken Adams says, At that time, I was not thrilled with the architecture in Vegas, so I chose the most modern building I could find there, then increased it twice in height with a matte painting working very close with a great and legendary matte artist named Albert Whitlock. So, yeah, you mentioned earlier, Tom, that Ken Adam wasn't uh, that enamoured with them setting it in Vegas. And you, you can see why if you see his previous work, you know. he likes it, to Yeah, he does He does otherworldly very well, doesn't he? Whereas yes. Vegas is very gritty. And yeah. I've got to say, in Diamonds Are Forever, it looks like a really grotty place. Yeah, it does. It's, um, it's so brown. Yeah, it's it. You can tell it's they've shot in the summer as well, can't you? Because it just it looks hot, looks stuffy. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. They they thought that that would look good. Actually, Guy Hamilton said, "Diamonds Are Forever" is set in Las Vegas. Early on, when we were deciding what to film on location and what to build back at Pinewood, I nearly had Ken Adam in tears because we wanted to use a really tacky looking suite for a scene between Bond and Tiffany Case. Ken was worried that people would think he was responsible for the design of it <laughs> in the end not surprised yeah i know in the end we could not shoot the scene on location and ken got to build build it to his own taste on stage but yeah you you know we, we watched it the other day going is this ken adam surely not so yeah you can see why he had a problem with it absolutely i read that they couldn't when they shot in the casinos they could only shoot between 3 a.m and 6 a.m so if they were shooting like that is a hellish yeah. Hellish schedule, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that's probably why everyone looks like they do. Look knackered and hot. Yeah, ha- haunted and hot. <laughs> do you remember in the Tiffany Case episode as well, there was a story about this guy, Sidney Korshak, who acted as a, as a fixer for Cubby in Vegas. He was sort of the go-between between the mob and the production. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. He sounded like a, a right character. I mean, just shooting in Vegas this in the 1970s, just... Yeah, the mind boggles. And some of that comes across, doesn't it, I think? Yeah, yeah, it does. So, yeah, the the car chase. Yeah, the, ch- the car chase, one of the... 
I'd say standout scenes from the film. I don't think it's a particularly amazing car chase. It's got one um, feature of it that is quite... It always happens with sort of car chases and Bond sequences. They always try and do one stunt really well. But the car chase in Vegas, that was it was filmed between actual outdoors in Vegas and on, on the set. You'll notice in the scene that there's a lot of product placement in it. There's a lot of Ford cars in, in that sequence. And the reason for that is that there's a lot of crashes. So they did a deal with Ford to get a lot of cars so that they could crash a lot of cars. And obviously you couldn't do that with a load of expensive cars. So yeah, a lot of Ford cars in that in that scene. Sean Connery had to drive the 1971 Mustang Mach 1, which is Tiffany Chase's car. As That was part of the deal with that company that they had to, with, with Ford, that he had to drive it. Because normally... In the previous films, Bond never drives a Ford. It's actually only the Bond girls that ever drive Fords in the in the previous Bond films. But th- this one, they said, look, if we're going to give you all these Ford cars to do this scene, Sean's got to drive it. So yeah, there, there's a Mercury Cougar apparently in On a Secret Service. I can't remember who drives it. I'm presuming it might be Diana Rigg Tracy. drives that one. Yeah. So yeah, it's an all right chase scene. Uh, it's all done around the streets of Vegas. Looks okay. Interesting fact about it is that um, apparently because of the neon lights in Vegas, they didn't actually need to use any lighting because the lights were so bright that they just didn't bother. Uh, the bit at the end of the scene, the big bit, the kind of crowd pleaser, was the bit where the car goes on two wheels, mm. which obviously you'll remember because we watched it yeah. the other day, yeah. which is pretty good. They go, th- He's like, driving along and he drives over like a big ramp at the side and he puts the car on two wheels so he can get through a like like thin alleyway interesting thing about that scene is that if you notice he goes up on i think i think it's the two right wheels through this alleyway and then when he comes out the other side he's on the two left wheels yeah now the reason for that was that they filmed it all and then they had to refilm it with a stuntman and he performed it on the wrong wheels so there's a pickup shot in between it where the car lands and then flips to the other one. But they're yeah. in an alleyway that's only the size of half the car. So it just if you look at it, it actually, knowing that, if you look at it, it, it just looks absolutely ridiculous. Classic um, blooper. Yeah, but I've never noticed it before, so it's, it can't be that bad. But that's like that sort of, you know, the man we go on gun where he does the corkscrew over the, the bridge. Yeah. It's kind of that scene. And um, I read something interesting earlier where they were, the, the, some of the team were talking about how the oil rig at the end was meant to be the big showpiece. But everyone just loved the, this part of the car chase sequence more. Everyone said it was the best part of the film, which was annoying for them because obviously they put so much, much money into the, the, the oil rig scene. That's the car chase. Well, it's interesting that when you look at this film, we sort of wrote it being um, a, a cut price Bond film, but... Um... This is like, that's like the standout action sequence. When when you think about Bond films, you know, like looking ahead to, you know, View to a Kill has an amazing climax on the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, they didn't film it on Golden Gate Bridge, but it was a spectacle. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Um, yeah, but I think, I think and you'll, you'll come on to these in a bit. They I think they try to do big, amazing scenes that sound, that, that sound good on paper. Like the moon buggy that Chase sounds good on paper. In reality, it looks like, I don't know, some sort of weird murder she wrote scene, but it's <laughs> it's like a carry on with the oil rig. Oh, that sounds quite cool. Helicopters, an oil rig, big battle, but it just doesn't really work when you, you you get to the actual scene. So, just a Las Vegas car chase is is meant to be like the high point of the film when it comes to action. Yeah, well, it's a bit of a 
interesting uh interesting film for its lack of spectacle i think um one mm. thing that would have added spectacle had it been included in the film was a, a deleted scene that they shot with sammy davis jr you can watch this clip on on youtube and and on the dvd it's, it's still there but yeah cubby requested that guy hamilton shot a scene with uh, sammy davis jr obviously famous in vegas as being part of the rat pack with frank sinatra etc but hamilton said i didn't think it was the greatest idea in the world i couldn't think of any shtick he was worried that the film was already getting a bit too long and he felt that um, this was a bit superfluous. And I think in the end, he was glad to have cut it, um, especially because he thought Sammy didn't seem that into it either. And he felt like cutting it would do him both a favour. So the scene in question sees Sammy Davis Jr. gambling at a roulette wheel with a woman. Bert Saxby comes over and asks uh, Sammy why he hasn't signed Willard White's contract yet, obviously saying that, you know, he was going to become one of Willard White's stars at one of his casinos. Sammy Davis Jr. says it's because of the money. um, And then they both spot James Bond walking in. Have you seen this clip? No. No. (laughs) No. They basically, they see Bond walking in from a distance across the casino and he's wearing his white tuxedo. And Sammy says to Bert Saxby, he says... There's not a there's not a cake big enough to put him on top of. It's like what what's the are they calling him a it's cannibal run? This is, is that, a Roger Moore film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, is he? He's, a can- he's in Cannibal Run, isn't he? I think Davis he, Jr. Yeah, I think he is. I think he is. But yeah, there's a really good picture of it in the James Bond: The Legacy uh, book um, of of him filming the scene. But yeah, you can watch it online. The Moon Buggy. The Moon Buggy. Yeah, so the moon buggy scene that was filmed uh, on location in May 1971 at uh, just outside Las Vegas, and that was it was meant to be Willard White's Tektronics plant. Um, it's actually a, a gypsum plant. So the moon buggy itself that was designed by Ken Adam, and then actually engineered and built by uh, a guy called Dean Jeffries, who was like a, a car designer. He built that in his workshop. And they gave a script to this guy, Dean Jeffries. And so in the original script that he was given, the moon buggy bursts out, comes through a wall and drives off down a service road before turning onto a highway and then it disappears. But Guy Hamilton saw the location and decided that a chase was needed across the the dunes of the desert. But the problem is the the guy who built it, he'd not built it to take that kind of pressure and stress on the actual structure and the moon buggy kept breaking down during filming because of this and at one point during the filming it breaks down out of shot and the rear wheel comes off and that can be seen you noticed it there didn't you the the wheel bouncing back back into shot so that's what that is that's because the moon buggy wasn't built for that chase that it's it's in and it was just basically falling to bits throughout the shoot um, uh, he built it to be able to attain speeds of 80 miles per hour but that was on the tarmac obviously when, when you get onto the the dusty desert it, it's slightly different so yeah that's the, the moon buggy and in 2004 the actual they only made one moon buggy uh, prop for, for this and it was sold for £23,000 in 2004 to the Planet Hollywood owner Robert Earl and the plan was to to display it at the Las Vegas casino of Planet Hollywood, but that has not happened because it looks ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were going to hang it on a moon the, bug- 
hang on. The moon buggy in real life only can only do about ten miles an hour maximum, surely. Yeah. Ridiculous. It's just, it just sounds very good on paper, doesn't it? <laughs> a moon buggy chase. So on to something a little bit less ridiculous. Um, they did a lot of filming in Palm Springs. And the scene at Willard White's house, the one that he's kept captive in with um, Bambi and Thumper sort of protecting him, that's actually a real place. It's called uh, Elrod House, um, which is quite famous. They have a lot of, in Palm Springs, there's obviously a lot of money and they have a lot of this sort of um, architectural, well, architects building these amazing places because there's so much money and so much space. So they can build these amazing big houses. And it was designed by an American architect called John Lautner in 1968. And there's loads of these houses. So what they did was um, Ken Adams, at the time, Ken Adams was um, quite a young man. So he he was, you know, he, he wasn't like the big guy on set. But they asked him, they said, can you go around to all of these houses um, and find one that we can use to, to film in, to, to do this this scene? And the the, the, the design was based on this, uh, this, this, this format called um, free architecture. And the concept of free architecture is that it uses the surrounding you know, geography of the where it's built so you'll notice in that scene that there's like rocks in the in the actual building and they're the real rocks that are in there you build around the the terrain that you're you're building on it's that's why it's called free architecture so a lot of that set is like heart is actually built into the sort of hill rocky hill that it's it's um created on so all the soils excavated but they leave the rocks uh, so yeah, really interesting bit of sort of architectural knowledge there. But the uh, Ken Adam talks a bit about doing it, and he says that he was he was asked to sort of go and have a look at these places. And the guy who took him to do it was Sidney Korshak, who was a big man in that area. And Ken Adam talks about at the time that in Vegas, in, in that period of time, that Howard Hughes has basically owned half of Vegas. I think you've probably talked about this earlier, Brendan. And the rest of Vegas was like mobsters. So bit of a weird place to to kind of go around all these different people's houses and say can we can we film and and do some stuff here um so so anyway he went with Sidney Korshak and went around all these houses and he said about this could be called him and said why don't you have lunch with a certain lawyer Sidney Korshak and ask him to see those great houses in Palm Springs I went to have lunch and he was sitting in a corner he had a phone brought over and he said I've got this young designer from England over show him the best houses in Palm Springs I was met by a black limousine and I saw everything. I couldn't believe it when I found this house because I said, this is fantastic. It's better than whatever I could think of. The man who lived there wasn't happy, uh, wasn't too happy. He said, well, who's going to pay me? And so on. I said, well, I'm only the production designer. I'm sorry, but I don't do that. Of course, then I talked to my team's friend and there were no more arguments about this, which is pretty cool. He's basically saying they went to a gangster. The gangster <laughs> came back and said, let him do this. And yeah. they just filmed in the house, which was obviously a bit scary for, 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 for Ken Adam at the time, but pretty amazing to, to film there. And then, yeah, they just picked that house and that's where all those those the scenes were filmed. And I think it's a fantastic location. You think it looks like a Ken Adam set anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's really one of the best spots in the film, isn't it? I'm just mm, looking at yeah. it now. It's eight, it sold for $8 million recently. Yeah, Amazing place. So the climax of the film takes place on the oil rig, as we discussed. And that is Willard White's Baja oil rig. Baja? <laughs> Um, and is that how he says it? He does. Do you remember? And the, he looks at it. Baja. Baja. Um, Baja. And so to film this, basically what they did was they hired a semi-portable oil rig, which cost $40,000 a day. Uh, they customised it with obviously all the set dressing and stuff they wanted to. And they towed it to a location off the Southern California coast 
near Oceanside Route 5, which is between LA and San Diego. So that's quite interesting, I thought. Like, I'd never really considered where you film on an oil rig. But yeah, they, they hired one. The cast and crew would have to be helicoptered out there every day to shoot on it. And uh, Jules St. John said that um, if the weather was windy or bad, it was always a bit precarious. As you mentioned, the end sequence was originally intended to be much more over the top and spectacular. And there was a bit where frogmen uh, jumped from helicopters into the sea and attached mines to the to the uh, legs of the oil rig and i don't know if you noticed this but there are frogmen you know um, in flippers and diving stuff uh, on the poster for the film because it was obviously designed while this was still part of the script yeah that was where that was filmed but um as as we discussed because of the the budget cuts backs the oil rig scene it's 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 okay but I think it's lacking in some sort of some of the visual effects, especially around some of the explosions that happen with it. They are shoddy. Those helicopter yeah. explosions are bad. Yeah, but I guess you've got to think about the limitations of the era. But um, yeah, I guess it just didn't really work then. It's just um, not a cool place when you when you think about Bond, especially whenever you've gone up from like, I mean, Goldfinger was finished in Fort Knox. You only lived twice. Was in a volcano. You had Piers Gloria, yeah. and then you go to just. <laughs> An oil rig, which is basically <laughs> yeah. where people work. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You've, you've basically had that in Doctor No. Crab Key was yeah. pretty similar, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But that was an interior as well, wasn't it? And this, yeah. It, 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 I, I can like, see an, an oil rig working for something like, you know, Bourne film. Because it's like industrial, It's you can do good fight scenes on it. But it's a very boring place once you get there because it's just pipes. Just <laughs> and a bath sub. <laughs> oh well. Um, other filming locations: uh, Cap d'Antibes in France with the opening scene where he delivers probably his worst Bond, James Bond delivery, <laughs> and he strangles the woman with uh, with her bikini top at, oh, uh, yeah. while while he's looking for Blofeld. That yeah, that was shot in in France, and it's it's not known. They asked. <laughs> Guy Hamilton was asked why they went to the south of France just to shoot that. He could, he didn't have an answer. So <laughs> I imagine it's just golf nice, courses, nice, nice place to go, and it probably got yeah, yeah golf courses. Yeah, yeah. Also, was shot. They used Amsterdam, so massively underused. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So the um, Winton Kid meet on the bridge. Which, uh, my Dutch isn't very good, so. Uh, it's called oh, M- I don't believe that. McGare Brook uh, is oh, what dude. it's called. So yeah, that's uh, that is shot on location in Amsterdam. Bond is also on the canal bridges, and when he goes to meet Tiffany, he uh, is ringing the doorbell. That's that's all in Amsterdam, and that canal house is located in Reguliergracht Thirty Six. That's probably awful, but uh, it look, still looks the same to, uh, to this day. That's when next the old uh, schoolboy trick, isn't it? Where you pretend to kiss yourself. Yeah. Absolute classic. Yes. Absolute. Best thing he does in that film. Best uh, acting he does in that film. <laughs> None of the interior shots of that house, though, uh, were filmed in Amsterdam. So that elevator fight was not. And that was filmed in July 1971. There was quite a few news pieces in Holland at the time because uh, it was quite exciting that Bond was being shot there. And then also Frankfurt Airport was used where Peter Frank's coffin is put on the airplane. Uh, that was shot at Frankfurt Airport. Interesting. Um, yeah. 
So there we go. Okay, back to Pinewood. B. So back to England, back to Pinewood. Ken Adam, finally, bit of freedom to do what he wants. He has... They took over four of the studio stages at, at Pinewood, so that there's quite a lot that's going on at Pinewood. Uh, it's quite tricky in this film to work out which scenes were done at Pinewood because there's not it's there's not many documented. I couldn't find anywhere that said these are all the scenes that were at Pinewood, but I kind of worked it out from various articles and things that I read that there are a few. Uh, the Moon Stage, which you would expect to be filmed at Pinewood, which is where the oddly astronauts are pretending to be on the moon and. They even when Roger Moore, uh, Roger Moore, Sean Connery's being chased by them, they're still running like they're on the moon, like there's no gravity, <laughs> which I still don't understand. There's a fantastic photo which you might have seen of Connery playing golf on the stage. Yeah, yes. I've seen that. Yeah, very famous scene, uh, which I w- wouldn't mind a, a print of. Actually, I was looking at it earlier. I think that's a really good, um, <laughs> more more interesting than the film. <laughs> the uh, elevator, where the elevator where he's going up the Willard White Tower. The outside scene obviously isn't uh, at Pinewood, but the actual bit where he's in the elevator and he's shooting the hook into the window and then he pulls across, that's all done on set at Pinewood. The penthouse, which is the best set that um, that uh, Canan designed for this, I would say, Willard White or but Blofeld's um, penthouse, which is absolutely fantastic set. And again, underused as a set in, in, in the film, which is, of course, based on the Howard Hughes sort of idea. Ken Adam talked about this in an interview. He said uh, about the penthouse uh, and of how to use. Yes, and I knew he had a penthouse. And since he was an inventor, adventurer and a brilliant engineer, I built the model in the glass floor and incorporated every conceivable gadget and comfort. But much of it ended up on the cutting room floor. So you can see he was trying to, he was using the Howard Hughes ideas to sort of build these sets and make them ridiculously convoluted and have all these amazing things in there. And then Slumber Mortuary was filmed at Pinewood apart from the external part which is a place called Palm Mortuary in, in, in Palm Springs so they're the only places that I found that are concretely filmed at Pinewood they're probably more but they're the sort of the top line ones other parts of the Pinewood furniture that crop up in uh, in uh, Diamonds Are Forever Money, Penny and Q so a couple of interesting stories to go with these two Lois Maxwell nearly lost the role of Money Penny uh, for this film she was originally not in it because um, her agent had asked for more money they and the producer said they'd recast and she said okay replace me but then suddenly the Bond people came through and they said that they'd been such a Ferrari because they were going to find another Money Penny that they wanted me to do it. So obviously word had got out they were getting rid of Lois Maxwell and there was a backlash whether it was in the press or whether it was just in the in the Pinewood offices I don't know but um, yeah they came back and agreed to put her in the film but she was very much a last minute addition. So um, Hamilton uh, Guy Hamilton said he didn't really want to do the whole hat throwing routine in the office and he wanted to do something with Money Penny out in the field. So there's that scene where Money Penny gives Bond his travel documents at the port of Dover. So it's a very last minute addition. But they felt it was very important to get her in after having resolved the issue with her pay. They thought it was important to use her. So uh, they wrote that scene for her. And interestingly, uh, Lois Maxwell and Sean Connery had to film their scene, that scene completely separately. So you never see them in the same shot together. You see one and then the back of the other and then the other one and the back of the other. Um, so they weren't on set on the same day. But there you go. That was the last time Lois Maxwell would film uh, with Sean Connery. And they weren't even in the same room. So Desmond Llewellyn, uh, he got an, a, a, an increased role in Diamonds Are Forever. He, flow, he flies to Las Vegas to help uh, Bond in the field with his gadgets as Q. 
And he does the voice box. Uh, and also he's got that ring that he wears, which helps the slot machines to pay out. And there's a funny story that he he told um, about when he'd finished his scene. So if you remember, he stood there and he's getting all the money out of the machines and um, Tiffany comes over and looks at all the money. Anyway, that money was real and they'd got all that money out and put it in there for the for, for Q's scene. And they just let Desmond Llewellyn take the money. Uh, he says, I put every single coin back in and didn't win a bloody sausage. So much for Q's <laughs> gadgets. <laughs> but then apparently Llewellyn, while he was in Vegas, hung out with Charles Gray and they went to see all the free shows with the acrobats and that sort of stuff, uh, which he said were wasted on the hungry gamblers below. So Connery's last day filming was Friday the 13th of August, 1971. And the shots were Bond being placed in a coffin and the lid closed quite fitting that was his uh the end of his portrayal as bond in the eon bond films tom mankovitz said everybody knew he was serious about the fact he wasn't coming back he really wanted to have a career and a life other than bond i mean there were so many things he wanted to do so yeah that's the end of a a huge chapter in in the bond franchise and in sean connery's life absolutely well, the, se- the second time that chapter's finished. For the second time, yeah. <laughs> and not for the last time. <laughs> no. So let's talk a little bit about the post-production part of the film. So we've got the title sequence, which is a return uh, for the the actual um, credits, opening credits from Morris, Morris Binder. The title, actual title sequence of the film... If you remember, if you think about this point in time, Connery had gone. They'd done on a Magic Secret Service. It wasn't Connery. This was all about Connery. They were basically bringing back Connery in this title sequence. They wanted the audience to cheer when they, he came back. They wanted to show off that Connery was back. All of the marketing around this film was that Connery was back, basically. So that that title sequence, it's like it's like a mini revenge storyline, but it's very simple. He's basically going to get Blofeld. He ends up sort of finding him in this like mud bath room kills him that's it basically there's not a lot that happens in that title sequence it's a very short sharp uh title sequence and at the end of it you think oh he's he's back he's killed blofeld job done nice and simple probably it's probably one of the least i, I certainly think it's one of the shortest sort of opening sequences with not a lot going on in it but then it goes on to the the sort of opening credits, and as I said, this is um, this is Binder coming back. When we watched it the other day, we kind of said, or I said, <laughs> I'm quite negative about this film, but I said um, it's a bit of a lazy title sequence. It's, there's not a lot that happens. Is it? it seems pretty simple. It's basically it starts by going into the eye of Blofeld's cat, uh, who's wearing diamonds, and the whole opening title sequence is basically a few shots of women. Um, lots of shots of cats and lots of shots of diamonds that's it really there's not a lot to it but i did read something that the actual techniques used by morris binder to do that were actually quite impressive it's probably the most photo heavy opening title sequence that he's he did by that point so apparently it's quite good from a technical perspective i don't think it's very good from an actual it's it seems quite boring it's not that memorable what are your views on that that opening title sequence yeah it's not very memorable i don't think no 
Not a lot happens. There's a lot it's of got cats. Diamonds. It's got diamonds. Cats. Yeah, it's not like you know Thunderball. You can visually you can see that when you think about Thunderball with the silhouette swimming past, and you can think about on a Majesty's Secret Service. You think of the flags and all that sort of stuff. With this one, yeah. you just it's a bit bit wishy washy. I mean, it's the the song is doing all the all the heavy lifting. The, yeah, the the song's doing this. The, the, I mean, yeah, that that song is doing all the work. Um, but yeah, and I've read a lot of people say that it is a lackluster opening credit uh, opening sequence it's almost like they've gone same with a lot of things about this film they basically said goldfinger brilliant we want the same as goldfinger and you've got sort of a, a less goldfinger version of goldfinger and it just doesn't work quite well but but yes the, the theme to that is shirley bassey which is good yeah, so in an attempt to recapture the Goldfinger magic, Shirley Bassey was invited back to do the theme song. So we've already covered this song under B for Bassey and B for Don Black. So please refer back to those episodes. Um, obviously, the most famous and iconic thing about this song is how the lyrics are very suggestive. Talk about holding it and caressing it and all that sort of stuff. And Don Black said, you know, seediness is what we wanted. It had to be over the top with a dash of vulgarity. But, you know, it is an absolutely stone-cold classic James Bond theme song. Yeah. And it actually won Barry and Black and Ivan Novell Award um, for the song. Uh, it was recorded. Well, the first recording session of the song took place in July 1971. So during production, at a place called CTS Studios in Bayswater. And there was actually uh, another song, uh, sorry, another verse in the lyrics which said, Diamonds are forever. I can taste the satisfaction. Flawless physical attraction. Bitter cold, icy fresh, till they rest on the flesh they crave for. But it was cut because it made the song was too long. So I thought that was quite interesting. Mm. Uh, the rest of the song was finished in September 1971, and the whole score wrapped up in October of the same year. And the single was published uh, in November 1971, so just a month before the film came out, which is sort of part of the course of Bond theme songs. And the single had a B-side called Pieces of Dreams, which is composed by Michael Legrand. I haven't heard that one. I don't know what that what that is. It wasn't a very big hit, actually. It only made number 57 in the US charts, 38 in the UK. Um, and the overall soundtrack also didn't do very well, um, didn't chart at all in the UK. But as Brendan um, messaged me the other night saying, there is an Italian version of the theme song, which is sung by Shirley Bassey called Una Cascata di Diamanti, Vivo di Diamanti, which is fantastic and definitely worth listening to um, if you're a bit of a Bond theme nerd like we are. Um, famously, uh, as we talked about last time with Shirley Bassey, it was sampled by Kanye West for Diamonds of Sierra Leone. And Arctic Monkeys played it when they headlined Glastonbury for the first time in 2007. I was there and it was a bit shoddy. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, I, I want to say it's the most iconic theme song. It definitely transcends yeah. Bond, doesn't it? Uh, uh, That's uh, a dissenting uh, voice from Wheatley. Go on. Yeah, what's wrong? What are you it's saying? It's not the most iconic. Are you sure? It's, it's up there. It's got all of the hallmarks of an iconic one, but it's not the most. I mean, I don't think it's as good as Goldfinger. No, I'm not saying good, though. I didn't say good. Oh, iconic in a bad way. No, no, just iconic. <laughs> I just think that it's widely known. I would say Diamonds Are Forever is more widely known to non-Bond what, fans. Yes. Uh, maybe because it's used in a sort of Vegas context and yeah, yeah and it's maybe, been, maybe it's, it's been more it's, applicable to... Yeah. yeah, I just think it's been sampled by a lot of, you know, different artists have referenced it. I just think... Yeah. 
Yeah. It, it transcends being a Bond theme song. I think that's the important thing, isn't it? It's yeah. like Live yeah. and Let Die. Yeah. It's like, it's a, so- a great song in its own right. Yeah. And it just happens to be exactly. a Bond theme song, doesn't yeah. it? Whereas yeah. Goldfinger is Goldfinger. You can't get away from Goldfinger, that. you don't hit, really hear that much out of context, do you? Well, it, it's, no. You can use Diamonds Are Forever in a lot of context, can't you? In adverts, exactly. in yeah. different yeah. films. You can't use Goldfinger <laughs> very <laughs> often. <laughs> no. No. Um, so, yeah, the soundtrack itself... Uh, composed by John Barry. It was the sixth time he'd composed music for a Bond film. And like you you said, it was recorded in October 71 and then re-released in the early noughties with more tracks. And uh, I listened to it today, actually, the whole way through. And it's, for me, it's the best thing about the film. I I think, yeah, you listen to it without watching the film. It's it's absolute classic soundtrack. Uh, dare I say it's his best Bond oh, wow. soundtrack? Yeah, I just I just really like all the the themes he's putting a lot of stuff together. There's nods to um, the Bond theme. There's nods to the 007 theme from in uh, from Russia with Love. Yeah, I just think it all comes together. It's it's. I love it's, it's I love great. Winton Kidd's theme as well. Yeah, and the fact they've got their own. Yeah, yeah. I just I think it's great. So let's talk posters. So Diamonds Are Forever does have quite a nice poster. If you, if you look at it, it's got all the hallmarks of a, a great Bond poster. It was di- designed by Robert McGuinness, who he's he's done a lot of Bond stuff over over his um, sort of tenure with Bond. Um, he did Thunderball, he did Live and Let Die, he did You Only Live Twice. He's also done loads of other films. He did um, the amazing poster for Breakfast at Tiffany's and, and loads of other things that are just absolutely fantastic designs. The Dimes Are For Everyone, it looks fine. I'm looking at it now. Um, and it, it's a nice looking picture, but when you actually delve into it, like many of the other aspects as Dimes Are Forever, it just seems to be doing it by numbers. Like the most prominent thing on this, you've got Sean Connery in the middle with two random women. They're not actually the women from the film. And he's being held by the moon buggy, the arm of the moon buggy. And, and as you mentioned before, it's got the scuba divers on as well. It's got the oil rig, massive oil rig explosion in the background, some sort of diamond laser in it, and loads of helicopters. Hardly any of those things say diamonds are forever to me. I don't care about the moon buggy, the oil rig, the helicopters, <laughs> or, or or the laser thing. Like They've not picked up on the main aspects of it. So you can see that I think this is like the point of diamonds are forever and where we got to with it, in that on paper, these are the things that they thought would be the one things that everyone liked. They're not. And the, the the poster looks nice if you look at it very briefly, but in reality, it doesn't say Diamonds Are Forever at all. It just it just says generic Bond film with some stuff in it. So yeah, that's my overview of, um, of, of the posters. There's not many others. There's not many variants of the posters either. There's actually some really nice Japanese ones. The Japanese versions are, are, are actually quite impressive posters for the film. But um, this they, they use the, the, the same format is used for all of the sort of Western Dimes Are Forever posters. And um, yeah, not a big fan. I think I read that the Spanish one covered up the two Bond girls into more, less scantily clad attire. Um, Mm. But you're right, it's not one of my favourite Bond posters. I think it's a bit ugly, to be honest. It's just a bit lazy. And it's not even Robert McGuinness, because Robert McGuinness, you look at the poster of a Thunderball. Thunderball poster is fantastic. Iconic, isn't it? Yeah. It's really nice. You only have twice. Twice is fantastic as well. It's a beautiful, it might not be particularly politically correct, but it's a very nice poster. And Live Let Die is an excellent example of that sort of, it may even be one of the first examples of that composite poster design. You know, like 
you know, you've got the, the main character at the top and then the two lesser characters and then some cars and then some other characters and it's explosions in the background. I think that was one of the first examples of that sort of thing. Like it might have been in, in like Flint or something like that. But this is like that, but not quite like that. Like it's, they're not really bothered to put the right stuff in. Like there's so much stuff in that film that you they just haven't put into the, that that poster. So yeah, that's the poster for you. It's it looks fine at a distance, but in reality, it's not got a lot to it. Right. So the film is all wrapped up. It's got posters. It's got a trailer. I don't know if you sort of, I don't know if you, you didn't mention this, but Morris Binder designed a teaser. A trailer for the film which you can watch and it's got um it's weird it's got like a christmas tree bauble which has james bond reflected in it and it sort of follows obviously there's no christmas tree in uh, diamonds are forever yeah. but the film did come out around christmas time in the uk it opened at odeon leicester square thursday december the 30th 1971 didn't have a, a london premiere though it had actually been released a couple of weeks earlier in germany on december the 14th um, and had been yeah in in the United States about uh, a few days after that as well. So we got it later than everyone else for some reason in the UK. Sean Connery had gone to a press screening of Diamonds Are Forever the day before it was released at Odeon Leicester Square, and his guest was Roger Moore. Uh, yes. um, and that fueled yeah. a lot of speculation at the time that he was going to be the next James Bond. But I um, thought that was a great little... Um, just imagine that, seeing Roger and Sean going in to watch Diamonds Are Forever. If if you knew Roger Moore, you'd invite him to anything, though, wouldn't you? It's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he would do all the talking for you. You wouldn't just be able to sit back and let him do the talking, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, you'd be perfect at those things. But what they did hold instead of a premiere was a gala Scottish premiere, and that was held at the Odeon Theatre in Clark Street, Edinburgh, on Friday, January the fourteenth, nineteen seventy-two. And that premiere was held uh, to raise money for the Scottish International Education Trust, the co- the a charity that Connery had founded using the fee that he'd got for Diamonds Are Forever. The film broke box office records at Odeon Leicester Square, and but it didn't actually, um, yeah, it opened up across several key cities in January and February, and then didn't actually go on full general release in the UK until March 26, 1972. And that's when the majority of its audience would see it. It's crazy to think that, you know, of this day where, you know, a film has a blanket opening of, 3000 screens or whatever diamonds are forever was like drip fed into cinemas so um as i was read as i was telling you guys earlier i read a really great thing on the double 007 magazine's website which said that um the diamonds are forever screened continuously in london's west end for nine months until closing in september 1972 so it's just a phenomenal run for a film really mm. yeah you can, can you imagine though that at this time people were so excited about seeing Connery come back that like it was the biggest thing happening at the time and you could even see it like it was not like no time to die now where everyone's waiting to watch it but Germany was sat watching it and you couldn't even see it yeah I bet people flew over to Germany to see it (laughs) well I don't know if it was that uh, cheap to do air travel but uh, yeah definitely yeah maybe they drove over (laughs) what did the critics think Brendan at the time, we've got a few from at the time and a few retrospective. Roger Ebert, he's always a good measuring stick. He gave it three stars and he said, the plot of Diamonds Are Forever is as complicated as possible. That's necessary in order to have somebody left after nine dozen bad guys have been killed. It has been claimed that the plot is too complicated to describe, but I think if I, I think I could if I wanted to. I can't imagine why anyone would want to, though. The point in a Bond adventure is the moment the surface 
what's happening now. The less time wasted on plot, the better. <laughs> I was surprised that he's given it a positive review he's, there. E- Eber always gives positive... He, he, he does these weird things where he does a review and he says, four out of five, then he'll just go into how bad it is. I think he's just like, just a massive Bond fan. So he'll always, always be pleased with them. Did he ever do Die Another Day? <laughs> I'm going to check that out. Um, New York Times said, A nostalgic journey down memory lane by jet, by helicopter, by hearse, by moon machine and by barefoot across deep pile rugs to king-sized beds in hotel rooms as big as Nevada. A lot of things have changed since you only lived twice. The last real Bond adventure. But 007 has remained a steadfast agent. Interesting that they completely ignored On A Majesty's Secret Service. But I guess that's at the time and it's only with time that people have started to look back with fondness on Majesties. And then Time magazines said, Diamonds are forever, in some ways, the best of the lot. It is by all odds the broadest, which is to say wackiest, not sexiest. Uh, And then they further praised Connery as a fine, forceful actor with undeniable presence who turns his well-publicised contempt for the Bond character into some wry moments of self-parody. He's capable of doing better things, but whether he likes it or not, he's the perfect, the only James Bond. So, surprisingly, mm. very positive at the time. Yeah. Now, res- res- retrospectively, this was Danny Perry wrote a review. Diamonds Are Forever is one of the most forgettable movies of the entire Bond series. <laughs> Until Blofeld's reappearance, we must watch what is no better than a mundane diamond smuggling melodrama Without the spectacle we associate with James Bond, the Las Vegas setting isn't exotic enough. There's little humour. Assassins Mr. Kidd and Mr. Wint are similar to characters you'd find on The Avengers, but not nearly as amusing. IGN chose it as the third worst Bond film behind The Man with the Golden Gun and Die Another Day. Rotten Tomatoes has got 63%, IMDb 6.6. Den of Geek said, Dimes Are Forever sends Bond down the road that leads to the Moore era. It is a road of pitfalls and pratfalls leading the franchise to a place that it doesn't want to go. That, at least, is the purest opinion. Conversely, you can view Diamonds Are Forever as the film that lightened Bond, allowing him to float over the 70s and into the 80s. And then finally, Empire said, The main man Connery is evidently back against his better judgement and no amount of John Barry scoring and fierce pyrotechnics could finally reignite the luster of his heyday. So, mm, retrospectively, over the years, it seems its um, opinion has, has waned somewhat. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of Bond films, isn't it? People do do these retrospective things that they don't do with other films from those eras. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But, yeah, they sound right. <laughs> I think they're right. <laughs> and how did it do at the box yeah. office? Uh, pretty well, actually. So uh, it grossed 2.2 million in its opening six days worldwide. It, that was 1.5, 1. 1.6 in uh, its opening weekend in the US and Canada. And they got overall. Um, it was the it adjusted for inflation. It was the ninth highest ninth highest rated Bond film in mm. terms of money earned of all time uh, the, with two hundred forty eight million. Uh, that's adjusted for inflation. And according in the states, it uh, set a new world record that would not be matched until Goldeneye in nineteen ninety five. So it pretty good. Did pretty well. Big a big hit. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they got. Yeah. But it, it, that's all it was, wasn't it? It was just, it did it, everyone wanted to see it. It was a big 
like, oh, everything's here. We want to see it. It's a big film. It's got Connery in. People pay for it. They want to see it. And in those days, you had to go to the cinema to see it anyway. So the marketing and the pull of Sean Connery worked. Mm. Uh, um, so award-wise, it won the Ivan Novello for best song and or theme or score from any film. The film was actually nominated for an Academy Award for best sound at the 1972 Oscars. So the sound designers on Diamonds Are Forever were Gordon K. McCallum, John W. Mitchell and Alfred J. Overton. And they lost uh, that year to Fiddler on the Roof. And that sound design was by Gordon K. McCallum. So he'd been on Diamonds Are Forever and also Fiddler on the Roof and been nominated I imagine he he was probably happy about getting it for Fiddler on the Roof. Yes, (laughs) I would think so. Yeah, the award went to David Hildyard and Gordon K. McCallum. So that was it. I mean, it didn't really win any other awards um, that year. So the legacy of Diamonds Are Forever, I guess it's set Bond up for the 70s. That I read something quite interesting about the film in that obviously now we look at it and it's a bit ropey in places and Sean Connery isn't that doesn't seem that interested and it's it's a comedy it's a comedic film and there are suggestions or hints or some people like to say that Sean Connery deliberately went about to sabotage the series with this film. <laughs> I don't know how you guys feel about that, but, you know, in, in pushing Mankiewicz to write a, a more jokey script, in playing it less seriously than he had done in the past, there is, you know, there's something there, you know. he Maybe he was trying to scupper the future of the series by going out, you know, by agreeing to do one last one and making it so bad that the series wouldn't continue without him. What do you think about that? I I think it's entirely likely. I mean... <laughs> we know what Sean's mindset was like especially a few years before so it wouldn't surprise me at all if he said oh yeah I just wanted to send him off with a a better position as I could have put it in and also he was friends with all of you know when you look at Connery talking about all the other films he's very reluctant to like say scripts are good he's very reluctant to say you know, he likes certain aspects of it. In this one, it all seems like every time anyone shows him anything, he goes, that's great. That's great. I love it. Yeah, do more of that. Even with like uh, Mankiewicz and people who he just said, this is brilliant. I love this script straight away. That doesn't sound like Sean at all. It just doesn't seem like it's something that he would have done in any of the other films. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Is it? it has got its defenders. There are people out there who will defend it to its death. Like Mark O'Connell, who was the guest on this, he writes about it very eloquently in his book. I mean, obviously, we know his taste is... Uh, it's often questionable <laughs> being a big Vito <laughs> Kill fan, but he writes about it in such a way that, you know, makes me sort of look at it in a different light. And there was a... That's that's Mark's skill, isn't it? Yeah. I, can we get him to come on and do a um, Dimes Are Forever versus Vito Kill episode? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe See what can. he does then. Uh, There's a really good article on The Guardian as well by Zan Brooks, who, who said it was his favourite of the, the James Bond films. We're hoping to get Zan on uh, to talk about his love for the film, but... Um, yeah, and there are like you know, as there are with all Bond films, there's passionate defenders of this film who who love it um, for what it is. Yeah. And I have to say, after watching it again recently, I don't hate it. I, I, as with all Bond films, there's something to enjoy in there. I do think yeah. it is it is quite a funny Bond film um, in a way, and it's very of its I, time and of its place. I would say that before we started doing this podcast and before we really like now when we watch these films we're really reviewing them reviewing the edit- editing we're reviewing the directing reviewing everything 
before I really went in depth with these, I think I enjoyed Dimes Are Forever, like the odd time I watched it. Like if I watched it, you know, sat with a beer on Christmas Day, I'd enjoy it. If I And then 10 years later, I might watch it again. I don't think I had as many problems with it. So I think it's more a, what, a film f- fan's review that we're giving it here than an actual enjoyable film. Because there's many films that I would probably enjoy that are worse than this film. But I think in the Bond like history, it is a bad Bond film. I think for me, it's it, it's because it's got all the ingredients there. You know, you've got Connery, yes. John Barry, Ken Adam, Guy Hamilton. These are tried and tested. Yeah, and and to to put together that that number of people, and and the the result in effect is this. I don't hate it either. It's just I'm frustrated yeah. of what it could have been. Especially What's... coming after Honor Majesty's Secret Service as yeah. well. And I know that was, yeah. you know, considered at the time, you know, a bit of a letdown for for Cubby and Harry. But like retrospectively, now we look at it and we think, oh, that's a masterpiece. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I, I, I've got a couple of good sort of long, long quotes from uh, what's nobody does it better. The book that I, we always use for these sort of quotes. Yeah. Um, so Glenn Oliver, who's like a commentator of pop culture and stuff like that he he, he talked about it he said um, Sean Connery fell off in Diamonds they paid him a great deal to return to the role and his performance somehow transmitted this fact his work in the picture felt disinvested like he was going through the motions a proclivity which likely wasn't challenged by the film's juvenile even base attempts at oddness and humour the painfully stilted and tone deaf simpleton sheriff gags the very strange crushingly ineffective report between Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd the fucking moon buggy chase in the Nevada <laughs> desert they all suggested a film which was struggling to find an energy and identity and was grasping at straws and then I read something by Fred Decker who's a screenwriter which I think pretty much sums up everything he says it's not a good movie but it's Sean Connery as James Bond sets by Ken Adam music by John Barry in fact it's my favourite score of all time and it's Vegas and it's Howard Hughes, all of which are things that I'm interested in. So despite its flaws, I have a real soft spot for it. It has enough of the ingredients in the casserole that I love that I'm willing to go. Okay, it's not a great casserole, but it has those ingredients, which pretty much sums it up for me. I think I agree mm. with everything he says there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, and that's what they wanted. It was a film created by numbers, by studios wasn't it they said right we want all of these things that made goldfinger so good but those things don't necessarily make it good it's that everything working together properly so it's mm. got every element that goldfinger's got it just doesn't have the heart of goldfinger and the 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 size smoothness of the of the story it's fodder isn't it it's fodder for the masses um yeah sort of filmmaking give them what they want um and you yeah. know don't take don't take the risks so there are some yeah. risks and the masses are probably happy with it that yeah they got everything by, they wanted they got everything they wanted and you know it did gangbusters at the box office so one thing i just want to touch on before we wrap things up is um just something we, we were talking about before but how it um diamonds are forever became the first christmas day james bond film in 1978 and this is something that us in the UK, I know a lot of our listeners are in other parts of the world, but in the UK, James Bond is very important in the TV and uh, on TV and became sort of a cornerstone of bank holidays, Christmas, New Year, uh, Sunday, bank holiday Sundays, all those sorts of things. He would always be on TV and the family would not would gather around, but people would like, you know, pass the time by watching a Bond film. And that's how yeah. 
I think his popularity has continued to grow over the years. Anyway, in 1978, ITV showed Diamonds Are Forever in the middle of prime time. It, it hosted the television premiere of Diamonds Are Forever seven years after it had been released. And this was only three years since Doctor No had become the first Bond film to be shown on UK television, which was in 1975. And ITV had played a massive sum to, to show the first six films on TV um, because it wasn't at that time you couldn't see these films after they'd been in the cinema unless you they had a you know a retrospective or a double bill um and it wasn't really until the early 80s that the hs releases of the films became available so it was massive unfortunately bbc run the way won the rating wars that christmas day with the sound of music which is from 1965 um and brendan you were saying that that's that was the first time that had been on tv as well yeah that was the premiere yeah um, and that started a bit earlier and the final 20 minutes of The Sound of Music clashed with the start of Diamonds Are Forever. And interestingly, when Diamonds Are Forever was repeated on TV on the 15th of March 1981, it was viewed by 22.15 million people, making it one of the top 10 most viewed shows on ITV history ever, which is just absolutely mind-blowing. So... It didn't just work in cinemas. This was working for people at home as well. And I think it's just really maybe the diamond has faded. The the, the luster has worn off. Diamonds are not forever. That's what it should be called. <laughs> well, it's a, it, it, a lot of the film dates. Yeah. And a lot of Goldfinger doesn't date. And uh, uh, like you, you could probably go through all of the Bond films and just look at them and go, that dates badly. That is a good one. And it's probably... You're probably going to end up with a lot of the best Bond films and ones that don't date very well. Casino Royale doesn't date badly at all, but yeah, definitely Casino Royale. Uh, it's definitely Diamonds Are Forever does. It's um, Vegas isn't as cool as it was. Yeah, and interestingly, this was followed by Live and Let Die, and then Man with the Golden Gun. Two other films that I think aren't, haven't dated that well either. So it's amazing that we got to The Spy Who Loved Me, which really reinvigorated the series. But um, we will get to yeah. those in in due course. Okay, so we've in the alphabet we've done four James Bond film specials. We've done A View to a Kill, Casino Royale, Casino Royale sixty seven, and now Diamonds Are Forever. So we're, uh, in, in the official rankings at the moment, the James Bond said rankings, it's Casino Royale two thousand and six, A View to a Kill, and Casino Royale nineteen sixty seven in third. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So where would you put Diamonds Are Forever within that pack? It's going up, it's going I think View to Kills above it for me. Yeah, I agree as well. Yeah. So it's better than Casino Royale 67 but not Absolutely 100%. <laughs> I, I'm going <laughs> to That's on the bottom if we forever. We do this Bond podcast for years. I'm I and we find something that's worse than Casino Royale. <laughs> when we get to OK Connery, maybe. I'm going to be very surprised. <laughs> Okay, so it's better than um, better than sixty seven Casino Royale, but not better than A View to a Kill. Yeah, yeah. Would you agree? I would say. I mean, Casino Royale two thousand and six by far the best film Bond film yeah. we've done so far. Yeah, I would. It's a weird selection. Yeah, it's never the first four you would watch. No, no, no. Personally, I'm going to book the trend here. I think I would watch Diamonds Are Forever over A View to a Kill. I'm just oh. putting that out there. Okay. I think it's a more interesting film. I think it's less mm. boring, maybe. But as it's a majority, and you two say, 
it's better than a, a not as good as a view to a kill. That's it. It goes in at third place. So the well, official. I'm going to invite you both over my house to watch Casino Royale 67, View to Kill, and Dimes <laughs> Are Forever Soon. So uh, yes, <laughs> forward to that. I can't wait. <laughs> And interestingly, our next film special is Die Another Day. And I'm really excited to find out where that God. is going to end up in the what ranking. A top five list to work from. We'll get to Dr. No after that. So hopefully we'll have some more good uh, films to deal with. Um, I'm a bit worried after like, watching Dimes Are Forever review last week that I'm going to watch Dr. No and I'm going to think it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's below diamonds are forever completely spent okay what i'm going to do is i'm going to build a ranking list on um letterboxd and we will keep that updated online so that you can keep track of our rankings as we get through them but um thank you very much for listening to the james bot a to z podcast we really enjoy doing these film specials we hope you enjoy listening to them please uh, let us know what you thought of the episode by uh giving us a rating on itunes and telling your friends about it uh and if people want to email the show with any corrections or anything they want to tell us about diamonds off forever how much how can they get in touch with us as long as they're not arguing that it's the best (laughs) Bond film. Podcast at jamesbondatorsd.co.uk And if they want to find us on social media, Brendan? And you know what? If if, if it is your favourite Bond, do, do, please, at jamesbondatorsd on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Let us know. Well, interestingly, just before we wrap up, there is a guy on on, on Twitter, a guy called uh, Patch, who is doing a, uh, a re-edit of Diamonds Are Forever and changing it into more of an Honor Majesty's Secret Service um, mm. sequel, Revenge. Mm. Uh, I was looking at his blog earlier. It's fascinating. He's got the salt mine in there again. And um, there are people out there and they do listen to the to the podcast. So please do get in touch. We really appreciate all the messages. And thanks to everyone who's been listening over the past few months. Our numbers are going up and up every week. So we really appreciate it. James Bond will return with the James Bond A to Z next week. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley. With music by Tom Ingomels. And artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.